This episode of She Does is brought to you by Fun Home, this year's Tony Award-winning Best Musical based on the best-selling graphic memoir by Alison Bechtel. The Associated Press calls this groundbreaking production the best of what Broadway can do. Get tickets at funhomebroadway.com. This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code SHEDOES at checkout to get 10% off. This episode is also brought to you by Texture, a smartphone or tablet app that lets you leaf through hundreds of your favorite magazines. Try Texture for free by going to texture.com slash she does. That's texture.com slash S-H-E-D-O-E-S. Welcome to She Does Podcast. I'm Elaine Sheldon. This week, we're bringing you a live and unedited conversation with Spanish journalist Amaldena Terrell. Sarah and I joined Amaldena in conversation on stage at Filmgate in Miami at the end of February. And we were lucky enough to have Miami-based musician Malin Comanares of Woman May to open the show for us. Stick around at the end of this recording to hear a short interview with Malin. We've sprinkled songs from her latest album, Ahi Ahi, throughout this recording. Our guest today is a visual journalist and filmmaker currently based in Miami. In 2015, Almodina joined Univision News Digital as head of video. And prior to working for Univision, Almodina taught video storytelling at CUNY Graduate School of Journalism, freelanced worldwide, and worked at the New York Times and Time. Her work has been published in The Guardian, Vice, Al Jazeera, Huffington Post, El País, Canal Plus, and other outlets. Amaldina is passionate about multi-platform storytelling, human rights, health and gender issues, the global south, and immigration policy. In this episode, we talked to her about Univision News Digital's goal to serve the growing Hispanic communities in America, the benefits of being a woman in journalism, covering heroin addiction in Tanzania, and her many lessons learned as a freelance video and photojournalist. She gives great advice on pitching and encourages all of us to be flexible and be able to do many things, but to specialize and master in one thing. Mi Almodena Toral. All right, so we just told everybody what you do, but why do you do what you do? Um, I guess it's a complex question, right? That it's good that you ask yourself once in a while, especially now, for example, full time at a newsroom, I feel like we're in a big hype. Like there's the rhythm of work is so hectic that I many times find myself asking, um, okay, I need to stop and just remind myself why I do what I do. Um, and I mean, it goes back to the question of why do we become journalists or storytellers, right? Like, we don't make a lot of money. We uh, suffer a lot at different points of our lives. So you only do it if you're really passionate about it and you don't see yourself doing any other thing. Yeah. So you're new at Univision, and I'm wondering if you can tell us what you guys are trying to do there. Let the audience know about the new initiative and finding that new digital audience. Right, so Univision, as many of you guys might know, is um, a huge TV Hispanic network. Um, the headquarters are here in Miami, but there are stations all over the country. And um, together with Telemundo, it's, I mean, they're the two only TV big networks that are covering Latino issues and Hispanic community in Spanish. Um, so they're a huge um, source of information for a lot of people who don't speak English in this country. Um, they might be, many of them are first generation immigrants. And um, it's kind of exciting to see how people respect Univision with almost like a religious type of sense. Like everything that Univision says is true and uh, uh, TV presenters are very veneered, and Jorge Ramos and Marielena Salinas have like huge followers, and everything they say is believed to be um, the word almost gospel. like yeah, gospel. <laughs> um, and that's really exciting to see because it takes you back to I think how uh, journalism or some outlets were perceived many decades ago in some other uh, countries, like maybe the U.S. or some places in Europe. So 
um, it's it's nice to have come to uh, an outlet that has a huge following, but then also looking at um, digital and what they want to do with digital and what we want to do with digital, it's a very different sphere because, first of all, it's not the same audience. Some audience we've inherited from TV, but some other we're trying to capture a new audience. And then the storytelling is very different, right? Like, um, I've never worked on a, in TV before. This is my first time working on a TV company. Um, and uh, we tell stories in very different ways. And that's amazing that we can uh, cover the same issues and try to cover the same community and do it well, but just take very different paths in terms of storytelling. Do you want to talk about some of the different ways of storytelling? You've said... Um, Every element, every part of a story um, has, it serves a purpose um, in, in a past interview. Can you talk about that a little bit more and how you decide which medium you're going to use and why that's important, the elements within that, to tell that specific story? Right. I think that digital allows us more freedom in telling stories. Well, for example, in TV, you... Um, Again, you have a story. Stories first. So you first have to have a good story to tell. And that, that's universal. That's for TV and for digital and for all other platforms. But once you have the story, the good story to tell, then um, media like TV have only one way to tell it. I mean, there might be different formats within TV. For example, Univision has different news programs that they can put a story in, right? Um, maybe some of them is a straight newscast, some other is a news magazine. So they have different formats, but you have to basically fit that story in a two and a half minute format. And it's very formulaic. It's always a reporter on camera. It's guiding you through the story. And there are different styles in like personal uh, newsmakers, but it's very formulaic. Well, I feel that with digital and with film for digital, we have much more freedom. Many times people ask me like, oh, well, how long are your videos normally? And I'm like, well, as long as they need to be. Like, that's the luxury of it. Like, we don't need to have a specific length. It can be uh, two or three minutes because that's what web normally, we see the tendencies like towards shorter formats, but not necessarily. So whatever the story deserves, which is an amazing luxury. We've all been frustrated with an editor who's like, no, 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 cut, 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 cut. This has to be under three or four minutes. And then you're like, well, it's kind of hard to tell the story in two minutes. Um, it can be done, but it's going to be a different story. So I tried to be, now as an editor, tried to be respectful of that and try to look at stories in a broader sense and how, um, what's the best media to tell it, if, if it needs complementary media, because film might not be the best um, media to tell a specific story. Sometimes a good um, narrative piece, print piece, is the best way with photographs, or sometimes graphics are the center, and film is just a little complement. But, um, but yeah, I'm a big believer of length just being uh, completely relatable to story. What? Nothing makes sense in this cool world. It seems a man. Don't you worry too much, but hey, that's all you do. do, do. More than what ways are you seeing um, news outlets now adopting more of a cinematic or creative nonfiction sort of bent on what they're doing? I think there are great way, great things happening in digital media um, in regards to that. Um, I mean, I'm really excited every time that an outlet decides to invest in, for example, um, publishing or making or funding longer documentaries. I've been watching recently some of the ones by The Intercept which have been, I mean, I really, really like them, and they're like 20 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, um, but shorter formats too. And I think a lot of 
almost every digital outlet that I know is trying to experiment with different ways of like visual storytelling from AJ Plus with their short form, really informative videos that you can literally watch on the gym or on the subway without headphones because they have text and that's great, to um, longer storytelling like The Intercept or like The New York Times Opdocs or um, I mean, I think there's there's great things happening in basically every digital outlet, and that's amazing. And it wasn't like that a few years ago, which blows my mind. What is the American media, what are they missing when it comes to stories about Latinos and Latino culture and life here in the U.S. that you guys are sort of filling in the gaps and finding that's interesting? <laughs> it's a big issue, right? Um, I think in terms of all first quantity, for example, of coverage, right? When you have, when you look at an outlet and their coverage in general, um, there's only so much strength and like quantity of time and resources that are put to certain topics. And some certain topics for American audience sell more than others. So the Middle East, for example, if you look at foreign coverage, for example, the Middle East, in my opinion, is the area of the world that American media pay more attention to. And um, Latin, Amer Latin America, even though it's very, very close, Mexico, I mean, the involvement between two countries is crazy, their neighbors, um, the amount of coverage is much less, although I think it's been increasing. Um, but yeah, considering how much there is to say, I don't think there enough is being told um, and enough is being covered. So that's where Univision or some other um, Hispanic uh, media can contribute more, first of all, because they have the sources that they've been developing for years. Access is really, really easy. If, for example, if you go into a story with, first of all, you're saying, I'm coming from, I don't know, like the New York Times or an American outlet, or versus I'm coming from El Diario from New York or Univision, I can't explain how the access you get even just saying where you're coming from is different just because of that gospel trust, right, that maybe undocumented immigrants have with the with the network and things like that. Um, and yeah, in terms of TV, they've been doing an amazing job at covering the Hispanic community and now Jorge Ramos doing more stuff in English, I think has covered, has opened up more possibilities for that work to be seen. But with digital, what we're trying to do is first of all, tap into the stories that TV has access to, be precisely because they have decades of covering this community while also covering things that they might not be looking at or spending the time that they can't spend at on a story like months and months and months on an investigation. So that's where we're trying to go. And um, I think we should put even more strength and resources and time that what we're putting now in covering immigration, for example follow up to that and um, it's something I've been thinking about in terms of um, the audience of the audience you guys are attracting because I think a Spanish you know that Spanish speaking audience that's built in that you have trust is super important but also I think it's equally important to have people that don't tune into Univision to be watching what you're doing because we also need to know what's happening in this community that's growing in the United States is that a challenge trying to get non-Spanish speaking viewers and is that even an interest of what you guys are doing? Yeah, it's definitely an interest. We're making more of an effort lately to do more projects bilingual. Every special project that we do now, we do it bilingual in digital. Everything is in English and Spanish. But also with the daily videos, I am a big believer that we should be doing them in both languages, even if it's just subtitling. Again, it takes time, and that's why sometimes it's it's hard to take the clear-cut uh, decision. Everything's going to be bilingual, but we're definitely going going more in that direction. And again, we're striving for being discovered and being read um, and watched by people who might not necessarily speak Spanish. Even just like you post a story that um, the team has been working on on your Facebook profile, right? And some people are like, oh, I wish you guys subtitled things. And that's a huge lesson. Um, people who might not be generally uh, journalists and find a story interesting and you need to be able to make it accessible to them. 
So um, yeah, definitely we're trying to put a lot of effort in our work to be more universal. It's not only like covering a community for a community, but again, our audience is so different from TV and we're trying to capture so many different audiences that part of that clear path is just um, try to cover that community for a larger community and try to explain more things even for people who might not be insiders. To let's go to Madrid. Oh yeah, let's start there. Where you grew up? <laughs> Madrid. What was it like growing up in Madrid? And what? And um, when did you first get your hands on a device that captures images, whether it was a video camera or still camera? So Madrid was great, and it's great, and I miss Madrid. <laughs> I was just telling me who's moving there that I was like, oh, I miss it. Um, but yeah, I was born there, so where my parents, my grandparents were from rural areas in the south and in the north of Spain, and um, I grew up in a happy family uh, with a lot of support from my parents and all my family, but I knew very early on, I must have been uh, 13 or 14, that I wanted to leave Spain, I wanted to see what else was out there, and um, in regards to where, when did I get access to my first camera or storytelling device? I was a print reporter first. That's what my undergrad was for. And I was very convinced since very early on that I was going to earn my living writing. Um, I really wanted to do narrative journalism. And my dream back in the day was to write a novel someday. Uh, so I think my first storytelling device would probably be just a pen and a notebook. Um, I think it was in college when I first got my um, first camera. It was a photo camera, it wasn't a video camera. I never thought at all to do video ever. It didn't seem appealing to me. I always associated it with TV and with rigid storytelling. But I loved photography. And I always did it just as a hobby. I would travel when I started traveling. Uh, when I was in college, I would just take my camera everywhere and take pictures just out of leisure. I never thought I would publish them or do anything with them um, until I started getting more responses like, oh my God, your photos are amazing. Your photos are amazing. I'm like, maybe I have an eye. I don't know. Um, so then I started doing some, uh, some print stories and then I would use my photos and of course that was convenient for some of the publications because you can offer both of the things. Um, but I literally didn't start making video until not that many years ago when I came to do my masters in the US. Until then I only did print and uh, photo. Well and, and going off of that I feel like there's uh, several schools of thought as far as um, is it better to, especially considering um, all the resources that we have with the internet, like you can teach yourself anything kind of. Do you, You've said that um, it's better to really hone in on a specific skill and be really good at that as opposed to being kind of the jack of all trades. Is that something you still, you know, would say and and why? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we have limited amount of time and energy. I'm reminded of that every day. I, I like to sleep a lot and I don't sleep enough and I wake up every day and I'm like, I need to do a better job at focusing my energy, right? Like energy is a limited resource that we all have. So then in that sense, at least for me, it's been useful in the past that I write decently, I photograph decently, and I now make video decently. But then again, I don't have like infinite time. I can't do everything. So then um, just specializing on one thing, it's been really useful and I think it it's probably useful, no matter what you do, to just um, be able to do a bit of everything well, but be able to do one thing just really, really good. And and is that video or photography? Where do you feel that most comfortable? That would be video. Yeah, I think for me that's video. 
I always, um, I've always loved photography, and of course, I love to photograph, and I would love to do that more of that in the future. But there's something about the moving image and being able to think about things in scenes that's really captivating to me even more than photography. Um, and then the power of being able to shape the story afterwards when you're in the editing room trying to take your hairs out because you don't know what to do with the story. And, and all, that, all that process, to me, it's really captivating. So for me, it would be video. Do you think your style has changed, or do you think you're, you've grown into your style as you've um, gotten more confident with video? And when you're shooting, what what do you what kind of what is your process? What do you look for? Uh, just give us kind of paint us a picture of your shooting process. When I'm shooting, I go into the zone. Um, it's literally like I don't. I, there can be, and this has been really helpful in really difficult situations where I might be surrounded by threats or by things that might not, I, I wouldn't necessarily be very, very stressed out if I was somewhere without a camera filming. But when I'm filming, I'm like just there, I basically tune out. Um, I mean, I'm of course conscious enough that I realize and I can prevent if somebody's gonna steal something from me. But otherwise, I'm very focused and it's just a natural process. I don't think that much about the shots that I'm gonna get. I mean, there's some planning that goes in your head because you need, of course, you know, you need some wide shots and some medium shots and some close-up shots and you need to circle around your characters and things like that. But that with time becomes a natural process. It's not like you're thinking about it that much. It's just like you're, you're just there. You had um, said that the greatest asset, this is about being a woman in journalism, the greatest asset in my opinion is the privileged access and some delicate issues, including sexual violence and women's issues, which I think is a good follow-up to letting the audience know some of those more dangerous, precarious situations you've been in and, and to comment on that, like about being a woman in journalism. Yeah, I still think it's a huge privilege. Uh, definitely, we get um, access to stories that many men would have a more difficult time to get access to. And there's something very universal about um, feeling empathy and trying to convey that empathy to another woman, especially if she might come from a or she might be in a disprivileged situation. And you can sort of like go back eye level and be like, we're both women, let me tell your story, let me be in this with you. And uh, yeah, I think it's just, it would be way more difficult that access for a man. What are some of the situations you've been in like that? Um, yeah. um, I've covered women issues quite a quite a lot. I've done stories on female genital mutilation, on sex trafficking. Um, I've done a lot of stories that might not be only gender-based, but I've chosen to pick a um, woman character or the main character to be a woman, like uh, one I did last year or a couple of years ago on heroin addiction in Tanzania. I purposefully uh, chose a character that was a woman. Um, child rape in Liberia. I've, I've covered quite a few things that are uh, gender issues, and I'm very interested in keeping on covering those issues, even within, for example, immigration issues or things like that now. Well, so why choose a woman in the Tanzania project and things like that? Why is it important for you to centerpiece a woman? In that piece specifically, of course, you could have. I could have chosen any character. Um, the story was about heroin addiction in Tanzania, and Tanzania is interesting because it's in it's 
in a sandwich in terms of where the drug route goes. It goes from Afghanistan and Pakistan, it crosses through Africa, enters through Tanzania's port, and then it travels to Europe. And the really interesting thing is that some of the poorest communities in Tanzania, because the drug um, is so cheap, they end up being addicted, and uh, there's all sorts of problems that stem uh, from that. But even within that community of people who were addicted to heroin in Dar es Salaam's um, poor neighborhoods, there were um, women and men, I have to say there were more men, at least from what I saw, than women. Uh, who were in that situation, but just precisely because of the extra challenges and the situations that those women that I saw were faced in, not only you have to, I mean, you have to face all the situations that you would face if you're addicted to a drug here in the US, but your family neglects you, you have absolutely no money, um, all these personal hygiene things, all the society neglect, you might be looking for treatment, but you can't find it, there's no resources. But then on top of that, a woman has to deal with um, physical abuse, uh, very, very often in the street or if they're in a relationship. And then just all these legacy problems that um, come out of just being a woman in a society that maybe doesn't value women as much as they should. So then you, I, in that instance, I just took a stand. I was like, I'm going to fight for getting a character who's a woman. And if that's possible, I'll choose that, that person. So that was the case. I'm curious about how <clears throat> when you're... Um, I I don't like this that I use this term, but like courting a subject. I mean, how do you approach, you know, gaining the trust of this person in a genuine way? The people that you're deciding to uh, follow, and especially in shorter works like less than ten minutes, how much time do you decide to give to gaining their trust? And can you maybe recall that story about how you? Um, lost touch with the person and you never heard back from them and that was the moment that you decided to just kind of take a more laid back approach. Um, where in Ecuador. The Ecuadorian. Oh, yeah. right. <laughs> Yay. Um, I think it depends on the story. It depends on how invested you are in a story. I think if I've learned to take things easy. I used to be very, very obsessed with uh, trying to get somebody's trust to the to the point where it almost became personal the ecuador stories i once did a story on an ecuadorian immigrant she was a woman um, she was here in the u.s in new york undocumented she had crossed the border um, illegally with coyotes and then time after she had um, daughters and a son in in uh, Ecuador so she tried to bring them and she went through all different ordeals like she tried to get her papers with an immigration lawyer who of course lied to her and she lost thousands of dollars that it had taken her years to save. She had been in an abusive relationship in Ecuador, and then she kept on getting on abusive relationships in New York. Um, anyways, a very complex story. I really, really wanted to get access to her to cover it throughout time. So I spent with her, I think it was about four months. I uh, went to her house in Queens very often. She had a baby who was a US citizen and some um, other, um, a daughter and a, and a son who were born in Ecuador and didn't have papers either. Um, but anyway, so I gained her trust just the way you gain the trust of somebody. I would just ask her if I could come over and she was perfectly nice and happy for me to be telling her story. But then throughout the four months, um, she um, got increasingly scared, I think, and some people have been talking to her about, oh, you shouldn't be talking to journalists, you don't have papers, um, something bad can happen. And so many things had happened in her life that were not positive that, yeah, one day she just decided to not open the door and I took it very personal, I was like, oh my God, but what have I done? And I wrote letters and it almost, it, it almost was like a personal quest. I want this woman to know that I didn't want her to harm her, even if she doesn't speak to me again. 
Um, she didn't speak to me again, and that was fine. And with time, I learned to take it things more easy and um, sort of like just take it more natural. And of course, it's like anything. When you're starting out, you're very, very passionate and obsessed. And a little bit of that obsession I still keep. It was a very dark time in my life because I took everything very personal. And then with time, I think I've learned, I still take things as seriously, but I try to shield myself a little bit more, at least when I'm in the field and filming. And sometimes lessons come time after, like when I recently did, or the story about sex trafficking. I That was a, like one of the hardest stories I've ever worked on. It and was very really, really, too. really, really hard. And I was perfectly fine. I was much more healthy inside. And it's been afterwards that I've realized the huge lessons that that had for me. But I guess without knowing it, I've become a bit more shielded. That doesn't mean that I don't share or try to become close to a character at all. Um, but um, I think just for like emotional health reasons, sometimes you have to uh, keep uh, a bit of sanity. But um, I'm just very open, straightforward with people when I'm trying to get access to them. I think I just explain what I'm trying to do and I might uh, show them some pieces that I've done before because some people might not even know what you're really trying to do. You're like, explain, I want to film you, I want to follow you for months. And you're like, wait, but for what? Why, why so much time? And now, let's take a break to hear from our sponsors. Support for She Does comes from the groundbreaking Broadway musical Fun Home, winner of five 2015 Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Best Original Score, Best Book, Best Director, and Best Actor. You're feeling low. Fun Home is based on Alison Bechtel's graphic memoir and tells a refreshingly honest story of coming out as a teenager, revisiting the past, and seeing your parents through grown-up eyes. It's only writing... It's only drawing. I'm remembering something, that's all. Sarah and I saw Fun Home at the Circle in the Square Theater on Broadway and were joined afterwards by a few of our She Does listeners. And one of the things that all of us were struck by was the amazing set design and fluidity of the theater in the round. Furniture vanishes and appears through trapdoors, and lighting is used to create clarity and dimness and emotional peaks all at the right moments. And I like the element of theater in the round for this show in particular because it allows the three actresses playing Allison to like play to different sides and for me as an audience member to feel like I'm just observing them in their world and not feel like I'm watching a production. Tune in to She Does on April 6th for an exclusive episode with Lisa Crone, Fun Home's Tony winning writer and lyricist. And get tickets to see this revolutionary show at funhomebroadway.com. She Does is also supported by Texture, an app for your smartphone or tablet that puts hundreds of your favorite magazines cover to cover in the palm of your hand. I spend a majority of my time in my apartment. It's where I work, where I sleep, and where I eat. But my menu has sadly become cereal, salad, or canned soup, and I've been looking to change that. At the same time, I've been wanting to declutter and simplify my apartment. So Texture's been the perfect solution for this dilemma. Using the app, I can bookmark articles featuring recipes from magazines I know, like Real Simple or Vegetarian Times, or I can take a look at the titles and articles the Texture editorial team recommends for me every day. Either way, it all exists in one place, and not in dusty stacks of magazines in the corner of my bedroom. And just like that, I'm on my way to becoming a sustainable master chef. I bet Texture can do some good for you, too. Sign up to gain immediate entry to all the content from the world's best publications, including back issues and bonus video content. And guess what? Texture is offering She Does listeners a free trial when you go to texture.com slash she does. That's texture.com slash S-H-E-D-O-E-S. This episode is also sponsored by Squarespace. And thank goodness for Squarespace, a service that honestly, we'd be nowhere without. We've been told multiple times that our website, which holds all of our content and artwork, is really something beautiful. The funny thing is, it was probably one of the easiest things to build. So much of our time is spent focusing on these episodes. You're welcome. But that leaves us very little time to give to the website. Thankfully, Squarespace offers intuitive and easy-to-use tools that allow us to look like we're professional website designers. And there's a cherry on top. 
When you sign up, you can get a free domain name for a whole year. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and make sure that when you sign up, you use offer code SHEDOES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Now, let's get back to our live show at Filmgate with Almodena Terrell. I'm sure there's people in the audience that make work, and so I'd love to hear um, any advice or practices you have with pitching. Um, you've worked for a lot of different outlets, and how you choose the story you're working on and then how much of it you present to an editor before pitching and I know getting paid as a freelancer is also an issue. So any anything around those topics? Yeah, I, um, I feel like I'm in a good position to talk about this because a few months ago I was a freelancer uh, with the good and the bad things that that entails and now I'm an editor. So I feel like many times when I receive pitches now, I'm like, oh man, I... I feel you totally. Like I'm, I'm there. I'm you. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's a hard balance, right? Uh, I realize now, being an editor, that it really bothers me when people don't do their homework and they might send you, or they require a lot of work, and the final product is not that good. Um, so again, uh, time and energy are limited, right? So the easier you can make an editor's life, the better. The more homework you can do before the pitch, better. For visual storytelling, I feel that it always helps to show some photos or some video if you've filmed anything before. If that's not the case, I definitely want to see previous work that you've done. So I appreciate when people send me a pitch, but then they're like, oh, in terms of visuals, I'm thinking of making it in the style of these previous piece that I did. And then you can click on the link and quickly get a sense of like how their shooting is, how their sensibility is, all those kinds of things. It's a little hard for an editor to trust if, if, if you're proposing something that you've not done before. And then, yeah, in terms of the pitch, the more research you've done, uh, way better. I remember when I was a freelancer, and it's hard, right? Because many times you don't know all the answers. Editors demand a lot of answers that you're still in the middle of reporting and you don't have. That's where previous experience might help you. It might vouch for you, previous work. But, um, and it's also hard to balance the, the timing, for example. Never pitch two outlets at the same time and try to be respectful in that way. Like, just choose one first, wait for their answer. If not, just give them a courtesy email. If not, um, and try to balance all of those things out. But I would say it's like any personal relationship. The more you know the publication you're pitching to and the person you're pitching to and the topics they cover and you do your research and you show previous work, if it's video or photography, samples really help. Um, that's key. What other things have you, you know, now that you've taken this leadership role, um, what other things do you think you bring to the table because you were a freelancer that you're sympathetic to? Maybe that uh, an editor that hasn't been a freelancer before may not think about. I think it's really important. I'm really glad I was a freelancer for years before taking this uh, role because, first of all, again, it wasn't that recently. So I really feel like I'm in the freelancer's shoes for the good and the bad sometimes. I'm really jealous because they're co we're sending someone to cover a story that is like, I wish I was doing this. And sometimes it's um, for the bad too. Like sometimes you really empathize with problems with access, with technical problems, because I've done a little bit of all the parts of the process. I can really guide the person better, uh, understand the difficulties when they're reasonable. I'm not asking for things that might be impossible. I really understand how it's to be on the field with very little money. I try to for example, make sure that freelancers don't have to pay anything in advance because I perfectly know what it's like to be broke and not have any money and all those things. So, um, yeah, it's just, I think it's, it hopefully helps because I was in their shoes just very recently. What makes you love being there in the field 
um, documenting? Like, is there a, a certain moment or a certain part of it that kind of feeds you the most? Yeah, it. I. I'm, I mean, I think again, we all become journalists because we wanna. We're curious, first of all, and that curiosity. Um, you can fit eat a little bit better if you're seeing things or asking questions yourself. Um, which again, that's why the field can be a little bit addictive, right? You can tell stories and you want to be there and you want to be collecting the stories and asking the right questions. And, um, but then at the same time, it's empowering to be able to tell more stories because you can commission more stories and be behind the scenes. So, um, but yeah, I don't, it's just being a journalist, you, there's no substitute for being there. With video, there's definitely no substitute. There's no story if you're not there. I am curious though, when you were a freelancer, like what was your, what was your, how did you schedule your day to make sure you were productive and how did you know which stories to go? Where were you living? Like you just covered such a, so many different places. I'm just wondering like, were you a total nomad or like how did it work? No, although, although I always feel admiration for people who are total nomads. <laughs> but um, um, no, I've bounced a lot, but I always had apartments and places to go back to. Uh, when I was freelancing more recently, I was in New York and uh, previously I was in Spain. And, uh, but I've always been good at trying to look for opportunities that might take me elsewhere. So I've been fortunate enough to have a few grants that allow you to just take off for a few weeks without having to worry too much about uh, the money and how you're going to pay it all. Yeah, I develop, I don't know, random interest for a place and then I become really obsessed with going there and cover a story and try to find the right way to do it. And grants are a way great way to do it and there are so many it just requires time to to research them and see which one is better for your project and send a gazillion pitches I always say that if my uh, current job fails or whichever work I'm in fails I could always open a consultancy on like writing cover letters and writing pitches and writing things like that because you just have to do way too many when you're a freelancer. But a lot of your stuff is topical in the sense that like, it matters that it's told pretty soon because it's, it's I mean, it's, it's timeless in some ways, but it, it is attached to um, current events in some ways. So how do you deal with the fact that grant cycles are dinosaur pace? Like how far in advance are you applying for them? I know you're not anymore, but like for people that are applying for grants, it's incredibly frustrating sometimes because they don't fit with your timeline of what you're making, your production timeline? Yeah, I think it's a little different for people who do like feature length documentaries and things like that, or people who are working on shorter form things like me. Many times you have to adapt, again, combine an interest or a will that you have to cover a story somewhere with what a grant is willing to fund. Many times it works the reverse way. You're just like, I want to tell a story in this region, and then you apply to grant, and then you sort of like adjust. You're interested in all these different things, and if you know that one is going to be more fundable, sometimes, unfortunately, as a freelancer, you sort of like pick that route because you think that that's going to get you the money to do that story and also that other story that you've had in the back of your mind. Um, so I think with shorter formats, it's not as difficult to make it work in terms of grants and the timing. How do you avoid only touching the surface if you're parachuting? It's really hard. It's something that I had a lot of trouble with as a freelancer. With my a lot of the international work I've done, it's been parachuting, and I have a love-hate relationship with that. Again, if you're a freelancer, you can get grants and try to spend money some uh, time somewhere, but many times it's not as much time as you would like, or sometimes you're commissioned to do something in some place. Um, when I was freelancing for the Times, it was always like that. I was parachuting somewhere. It was only a few days. I had to make miracles to find a good story. Um, if you develop instincts, you become better at it. And of course, that's why you're able to find stories where maybe other people can't find them. But um, 
it's really hard. It's really hard. Sometimes I think of a failed at staying. I stay at the surface. Some other times I feel like I've gotten lucky. When I did a story about mule ladies in Morocco, I was on the ground for four days and I found an amazing story and I spent time with those women and I feel the story didn't get on the surface, didn't stay at the surface at all, but it, it was almost luck. Like I found the right woman at the right time and it was luck and some other times, um, you try to put in the time, as much time as you can, and time always equals more quality in the work. And yes, when you don't have that time, then you either get lucky or you stay in the surface or you try to do as much research as you can, keep in touch with the subject. Um, there's no perfect formula. If you, wanted to ch if you could change anything about the media landscape right now, what would it be? I think, I mean, not change, but... Um, I think there's a lot we still have to learn about business models and uh, I just wish that we could fast forward in time and see what mistakes we're making now. Uh, <laughs> we, we will of course know a lot more in a few years of course about business models for video which is a big incognita and everybody is trying to like tap into the, the magical formula that nobody has. Um, but um, I just wish that we had more sustainable models in traditional newsrooms like Univision or others, um, models that could work for long-form storytelling. We're trying to develop a strategy at Univision, for example, where we do a lot of daily work and a lot of like the work that we say, like, basically gives you to eat, like you, you can eat thanks to that work, to be able to have other people have the time and the resources to do other type of work that is more long form. But even that balance is hard. Like sometimes you wish you can give more time and more resources, but mostly time to people who are working on longer form stories because that those are the ones that you're more excited about. And many times you don't have as much time as you wish you had. All right, we want to open it up for questions as well and uh, just shout your question and we'll repeat it. Hi. So you were talking about showing the interview subjects, the completed stories afterwards, but I know as a journalist, sometimes we do stories that maybe aren't profiles or maybe we show different sides of a person, not all of them as flattering, or maybe it's not exactly a very flattering portrait at all. Um, so how have you dealt with that, with maybe showing a subject in a way that maybe they they didn't exactly see themselves or, or agree with the way that they were portrayed. I've never had a problem with that, to be honest. And sometimes I feel surprised about that. Uh, so sometimes I'm very scared of showing something to someone because I'm like, oh God, they're gonna, yeah, they're not gonna like it. They're gonna be, but at the same time, yeah, no, I, oh, I never had that problem at all. I think, um, again, when you gain somebody's trust and they see you, they see you filming or photographing even when they're going through di really difficult times. So I think in many instances they might from the beginning expect for that to be there or they open the door for anything they do to be there and then they're, I don't know, I've never had a problem with that even though I always fear it. Any questions? Mike. Uh, I can so like, go, what's the, the transition from freelance to having a more like a corporate job, let's say, right? Or larger The question was, what is the mind? What or how does the mindset shift when going from freelance to a more to a job? <laughs> um, it shifts a lot, and not at the same time. I remember the first. Probably the first few months when I was at Univision, the first couple of months, 
I was very confused. I thought so often I've made the wrong decision. Uh, especially if you're at a big company, very corporate, like you say, very bureaucratic, which is the case of Univision. I felt very frustrated the first few months. I, first, I felt like, I don't know if I'm made for this. You're, again, you're coming from a degree of freedom that all of a sudden you don't have, and you have to spend a lot of time doing very boring things. But then at the same time, once time went by and I adapted a little bit to the new environment, just again going somewhere on office hours, which wasn't a habit, maybe if you're a freelancer and things like that, and maybe not being on the field so often, but spending more time on other things. I think you're, I got more relaxed and more, just more adapted. And then I started seeing the huge opportunities that there are. And the reason why I had accepted the job in the first place was first of all, I wanted to learn. It's something I've never done. And then second of all, there are huge opportunities in shaping the things you cover or the way you cover them, which is um, not a luxury you have as a freelancer that often. Um, I mean, you have uh, a lot of freedom in a range of things, but then you also have the wall in many others. Like, yeah, you can work your ass off, but an editor, and it's happened to me before, might decide to change your story completely, and you're like, this is not why I'm doing this. Um, at the corporate job, yeah, you have to get adapted and you have to change your mindset. But at the same time, we're doing storytelling, which is never, days are never the same. And uh, you can, again, you have the power to change what direction it's being taken. So we're talking about storytelling, but what about story finding? How often do you find that a story finds you or that, you know, you have to go out and and look for it? I think it depends, and it's both. Um, I miss those days when I found all of my stories because I had to be out in the street looking for them and talking to people, and I think there's no substitute for that. I sometimes miss that at Univision. I feel I spend way too many hours at the office and not enough hours being in personal contact with the stories that I want to find. Um, so there's no substitute, definitely the best way for me is to go out and talk to people and develop a network and just hear of things yourself. But then the more years you do this, um, the bigger the chances you have that stories do fall on your lap because somebody tells you something or somebody you did, um, somebody saw it and just recommends something else to cover and that leads you to something. Or um, again, nowadays, I don't think there's a perfect formula, but you can find a lot of things just researching um, online and uh, calling people who have um, covered uh, certain areas before. Yeah, there's no perfect formula. Personally, I like to find stories um, by talking to people directly and going out in the street, but sometimes you don't have the time. If you're parachuting somewhere, you might not have the time or the luxury. You have to find out as much as you can before you arrive. Uh, so working in Univision, um, introducing web and digital content to that company now, was there any issues trying to introduce that when working there? And did you personally feel like you had worries of having this uh, brand of media being part of Univision? Yeah, I feel we're still in transition, to be honest. Uh, I mean, before I came to Univision like 10 months ago, there was a digital presence. Um, I mean, they've had a website for obviously a while, but they didn't pay much attention to uh, digital. It was mostly just taking TV and putting it on the web um, in short clips, and that was it. And now, of course, we're trying to change that whole strategy, and a lot of it goes um, towards doing original content that's only for digital and not for TV, while at the same time collaborating with TV a lot more. And that creates all sorts of challenges for sure. It's not easy. I think it's more difficult to do the digital transition at a TV, be precisely because they're audiovisual. 
So <clears throat> if you're coming, if you're working at a print outlet doing the transition to digital, you find several challenges, like writers might have big egos and they don't want to do the digital thing, or they're like, well, we're in newspaper, why, why do we have to do video? But it, it's a new media for them, for example. While at, TV, at a TV station, um, video is their media. They're really familiar with it. They do video, and uh, many people don't see the difference at all. They're like, well, it's just video. And you're like, well, it's a different kind of video. So uh, educating while at the same time being respectful also. Like, I'm no one to judge that your work is not uh, good work on TV. Again, it's amazing work. They do amazing work. Um, but you're trying to do something different. And you're trying to collaborate and tell stories together. We've had a few attempts of telling stories partnering with TV, and it's been really, really hard. Because again, what you need is completely different. What I need to do a documentary is completely different from what um, a TV crew needs. And also in terms of access, they um, many times TV crews are um, several people. And when you're trying to get access to specific stories, that's detrimental to the story. Many stories I've told is just been me with a character. And now try to put a TV crew in with huge lights, with five people. And so we're trying to tell some stories now in tandem, but I don't think we've had the perfect tandem yet but hopefully it's in the future. I think we're working on it, but it's definitely a big challenge. I, I have another one. Um, is there anything that you haven't done, whether with Univision or personally, that you want to do in your career? Mm, yeah. <laughs> I think I would love someday, although I don't know when. It might be really far out in the future, but I would definitely like to do a feature-length film. Um, although, again, I don't see it in the near future, and it really scares me, and I think it will be really traumatic process. But I would love to do it someday, and I would also love to go back to writing. So at some point, maybe take a couple of years off and go back to writing and, and write more. Seems pretty realistic. And I think you could tackle a feature yeah, you based on your experience and bravery in other areas. So. Thank you guys so much for coming to this live recording. Um, give Amarina a round of applause. Thanks to Diliana Alexander at Filmgate for hosting this conversation. Visit our website to see links to Almodena's work. This show is a product of Slate's Panoply Network and was produced by myself, Elaine Sheldon, and Sarah Ginsberg. Sound design is by Billy Wrasnick. Our music maker this week is Malin Colmenares of Woman May, a Venezuelan bred and Miami race composer. We're going to wrap up this show with our Q&A with Maylin at Filmgate, followed by her live performance. Listen and download Woman May on Bandcamp, Spotify, and iTunes. And thanks for listening to She Does. I got my shake, the shakers around. I go and go and I go and slow. I wear my so tell us about uh, the latest album. Well, I, uh, I flew out to Paris to uh, record with a record label called Midnight Special Records. And this was back in July. And uh, it's a few of the song that I songs that I played with a bass, a synthesizer, a drummer, the whole works. And uh, it's a few songs that took years to write. You said you've been playing for 10 years. What got you started? Who Who gave you your first instrument? Uh, my mama. <laughs> my mom definitely put me up to music lessons, but she's a painter. But music's always been around in my family. Like, they've been playing the Beatles and Otis Redding and Edda James since I was a kid. So are those some of your inspirations? Can you talk about some music oh, yeah. you love? Yeah, uh, Otis Redding for sure. Uh, like, Erica Badu, like R&B, even hip-hop. Like, uh, blues artists for sure. 
How does being in Miami, being an artist here in Miami, influence your work? Definitely feel inclined to write a lot more Spanish songs, for sure. People really appreciate culture here. It's like people from all over. What does music do for you personally? How does it make you feel? What is it like to play? How does it make you feel when you're playing live? Makes me really happy. It's nice to do something that makes sense for yourself, but also know that other people can relate the same way. Like knowing I'm playing a song and this person might not like it, but I know there's a song in their life that they heard and it changed them or made their day better. That's nice to know that. Is there one that's done that for you? One oh, song that... That's so hard. Not maybe just one, but that you can think of. Well, yesterday I got really happy because I heard this song called I'd Rather Go Blind by Etta James. We were just yeah. mentioning her. Yeah. And I was like, yes! I yeah. felt motivated even though it's a very sad song. Yeah. <laughs> it was cool. Any tips for um, indie musicians out there? Don't get discouraged. No matter what show you're playing or anything you have to keep playing you have to keep writing even if you think you don't have any more songs to write thank you i don't know if anybody this is sarah gabadu but i put a little eric gabadu in there uh, so uh, we'll play uh, uh, two more and they're from an album i just released in july yay it took me a while so thank you
Thank you. Thank you so much.